Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. So uh, what's funny is I, I always love coming and worshiping. I look forward to it all week. And, and last night, uh, Amy and I, after service, we were like, you know, like, we love it, and Nick was leading the song, he was doing a great job, but man, he can, like, preach, you know? Like, I think I, I'm just going to let him, we got to start writing down what he says, because, like, dude can flow. And so, it, it, yeah, so I wrote one down for him. I'm going to pretend like it's mine. I stole it from him, though. I just wrote that. This victory is for you, but it's not written by you. It's signed with Jesus' name. And I'm like, that'll preach right there. That'll preach. All right, that'll preach. Anyway, good morning. Glad that you guys are here this morning. You guys doing all right? Woo! The air conditioning is on in here. All right. Well, hey, if you're new, I want to give you a special welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, we have this thing called a butter bar that you can grab on your way out. Ask somebody who invited you, or if you, you're here, uh, you kind of just wandered in. It's at the uh, kind of the container that's out there. Grab one of those. We just want to say thanks for being here. And um, also, we're uh, going to be giving back to God, and we've kind of gotten rid of the buckets, I think. We're kind of done with those. And so if you do give in person, you can give at the doors on the way out. Or most of you guys have transitioned to either sending it in via mail, which I didn't even know was still around anymore. I don't even know where to buy stamps. Um, uh, those are our best givers, by the way. <laughs> anyway, uh, and, uh, or online. And uh, you guys have figured out all the different ways to do that. So I'm going to give you a heads up. Um, in uh, a, a few weeks, at the beginning of July, we're going to be doing something called Summer of Somebodies and Somethings, all right? So if you've never seen that before, it's going to be fun, yes. But here's the deal. It's going to be just action-packed all of July, and it's expensive, okay? So if you're like, hey, add a zero on there is what I'm trying to say. Add a zero because we got to pay for that, all right? Anyway, um, what else do I need to tell you about? What else do I need to tell you about this morning? I think that's it. Let's get started here. All right, so here's my question of the day is uh, this, last, uh, this last week, oh, by the way, Matt did a great job last, uh, last week. I want to give him a shout out. Great job. If you weren't here, Matt is our youth pastor. He happens to be my brother-in-law, not by choice. And, um, and here's what I loved. He did, he did an awesome, but here's one of the things I loved is that I'm not the young guy anymore. <laughs> like, it's kind of a bittersweet thing, to be honest with you. Like, he's now the young guy. I'm the, I'm not saying middle-aged, I'm the middle-aged no, nah, I'm the middle in the, okay, let's keep going. All right, uh, so last night was our last uh, service in the tent, and so we spent a year out there, and so last night was our last service out there, very excited about that. And so I asked the staff, and I want to ask you this question, we'll take about 30 seconds, is what is your favorite thing that took place in the tent in the last year? All right, so what was your favorite thing that took place in the tent last year? Tell somebody around you, really, really quick, go. <laughs> Okay, what'd you come up with? Just, just, well, start over here. Yell it out. What'd you come up with? New friends. New friends. The what? Candles, I heard? Candles? Camel. Candles? Both? Camels and candles. The candle service. Okay, what else? The wind. It was your favorite? Summer concerts. Yes. What about over here? Sunset. Very romantic services. Yes. All right. Over here? Yeah. Car horns. Meh, I can take them or leave them. Uh, okay. 
So we asked this question online. Some of you guys responded on Instagram. Um, so Molly Fitzbrewer said Christmas Eve. Kat Stinger said the car honks. I giggle every time. <laughs> um, Jazz Kaz 4 said the birds chirping. <laughs> That's good. Uh, let's see here. Sean Wright 98 said I gave my life to Christ at one of the services and I couldn't be more blessed. Very cool. Uh, we had some summer concerts. We had oh, um, Aiden Carbaja 08 said when Fast and Furious showed up by, uh, drifting cars. That was usually Saturday nights. If you didn't come to Saturday night service, we had Fast and Furious out there. It was fantastic. Uh, Michelle Bell said one Saturday when we were early enough to grab a couch. Get here on time, I think is the message there. And then Mommy Linder uh, said uh, Super Bowl competition and that bird that distracted Cody. There you go. So anyway, funny, last night I did that, I went through that, and I kid you not, it's as if God sent a bird from heaven, and it literally came across the stage at my eye level, like this, and then flew across, and I just went, and it was a dove, I don't even know, I don't even know what that means, if it was a pigeon, I'd be like, Satan, get away from me, but it was a dove, so I feel good about it, all right, anyway, let's get started, here we go. Uh, so uh, we, uh, after Easter, we started going through the book of Acts. And if you don't know anything about the book of Acts, here's kind of the big picture. It is right after Jesus' death and resurrection and then ascension into heaven, he sends his disciples out and he goes, I'm going to send you this person called the Holy Spirit, and they're going to come and empower you, and then you're going to go out and you're going to start this thing called the church. Didn't really know what that was going to be like, but it's going to be this gathering of people who come together and they worship me, and you're going to go and you're going to plant a bunch of these communities, and you're going to spread this message throughout the world. And that's exactly what happened. And so the book of Acts is the account of how this all took place. And so uh, we've been going through the book, we've been learning different things, and it's a pretty long book, and so we're not going to be able to make it through the whole thing. And so I'm going to fast forward quite a bit, and I want to jump into towards the middle end of Acts. We're going to go to Acts 17, and here's what's taking place. is uh, So far, this guy named Saul, who became Paul, he had this dramatic conversion experience where Jesus shows up to him. And the reason why it's dramatic is because he used to be a person who would hunt down and kill Christians, and now he becomes a Christian. And so he not only has this conversion experience, but he feels like God is calling him to go and to plant churches and to share this message and eventually write these letters, which takes up a big chunk of the New Testament. And so we're going uh, to jump into Paul's story, and where he's at right now is he's just been in this city called Berea, and there's, uh, there's a bunch of crowds that got kind of wild, they started acting up, and so it was pretty dangerous, and so he decides to leave and go on to the next town. And he has some traveling buddies, and he's going to wait for those traveling buddies in the next town in Athens. And if you don't know anything about Athens, it's a pretty uh, interesting place. It was the intellectual and cultural center of um, at least the, the, the Greek world. And um, there's people like Socrates and uh, Aristotle who came out, and Plato who came out of this hundreds of years before. And so you kind of can see that the, uh, the, the historical roots it had in a lot of the Western philosophy. And so we're going to jump in and see what Paul kind of wrestles with while he's there. So Acts 17, verse 16, if you have your Bibles, Bible app, and I think we're also going to have them on the screens. Here's what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
And so it's a pagan city, and so they had different types of gods that they worshipped. In fact, it's almost like they had an unlimited amount of gods. They had a god for everything. They had a god for the city of Athens, for business, for fishermen, for love, for war, for fertility, for wealth. And they would build these shrines in order to come and to sacrifice and worship to these gods. And um, I'll try to keep it PG, but one of their acts of worship was to uh, um, enjoy each other's company, even pay for it. Okay, you get the idea. All right? Think Vegas. There it is. All right. And so, uh, and so Paul arrives, and he sees all of these idols, and it says that he's distressed. Now, we know that idols are a big deal. You see uh, mentioned throughout scripture, and it sounds like this outdated kind of irrelevant term, but here's what idol means. Don't just think of like a plaque or a monument or something made uh, uh, out of like a, a silver or gold. Really what an idol is, is, according to scripture, is it's anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that's more important to you than God. It is the thing that you find your self-worth and your security and your identity in. It's the thing in which you place all of your meaning and your hope and your safety and security and happiness. This is the thing that takes the number one spot in your life. And the scripture says that these are counterfeit gods. They're a pseudo-salvation. It's taking something that is probably a really good thing. Maybe even something that God has put in your life as a gift. And yet we take it from a good thing to an ultimate thing. And so Paul is walking around and seeing that this city is an absolute mess, that something has to be done. And so here's what happens. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And so he just goes, this is a disaster. I got to do something. And so he starts to going where all the people are. First, he goes to the synagogue and he starts uh, talking to them about Jesus. And then he goes into the marketplace. And this is where everybody is at. This is where all the trade happens. This is where the philosophers gather to debate. This is where all the art is. This is where, this is the center of the, this is where everybody is at. 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So like I said, there's a bunch of philosophers there, and these are two of the main uh, groups of philosophy. And they start engaging with him about these new ideas, because that's what they would do, is they would gather together on a daily basis, and they would discuss philosophy and whatever the new uh, ideas of the day were. And so Paul starts engaging them, and if you know anything about Paul, he's a great philosopher, and they find him interesting, and so they invite him to the Areopagus. And that's just another group of, of leaders in this city. And so they go to the Areopagus, and here's what happens. We'll skip down to verse 22. But then, uh, but then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, okay, so I'm just going to catch you up. He's going to make a case here, all right? He's going to make a case for Jesus. And so what he does is he starts with an opening line. And this opening line is pretty interesting because if it were um, at the synagogue like he was before, he probably would have gone to the Old Testament and said, okay, look at all these prophecies. They're all pointing towards the person of Jesus, why he is the Messiah. But he's not talking to those people. He's talking to a bunch of Greek philosophers. Think your college professors, okay? So here's his opening line. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, again, let's go back, think about your college professor. That might be something that they would not consider themselves, is religious. And yet, that's what he says. So to give you a little insight on these philosophers, the Epicureans, these were people who followed the philosophy of Epicurus, who lived hundreds of years prior to this, and he was referred to later on as the destroyer of religions. 
Because he came up with arguments, the argument from evil, by the way. And this has been around for thousands of years. And the argument is usually either to disprove God's existence or his power or his goodness. And so these people definitely were not religious. They were kind of anti-religious in, in some ways. And they didn't believe in an afterlife. They thought that death was the end. And then you had the Stoics who were there. And the Stoics did believe in a pantheon of gods and they revered them, but they weren't really concerned with them. They were much more concerned with philosophy, reason, and logic, and evidence than they were about any kind of gods. And so he steps up there and he says, you are very religious. Why would he say that? Here's, I think, the point that he's trying to get at here, is that everybody is religious, whether you want to admit it or not. Some of you guys came in this room, you're not a believer, you're not, someone dragged you, your girlfriend's like, hey, you know, uh, we got to go to this place, I heard that. I don't know, they give free butter bars out, whatever your excuse is, okay? And you think, I'm not a religious person. I don't really, I'm not really into that. Here's what Paul would say to you. Everybody is religious. Andrew Sullivan in New York Magazine wrote an article called America's New Religions. Here's what he says. And by the way, not a Christian magazine, if you couldn't figure that out. Everyone has a religion. It is, in fact, impossible not to have a religion if you are a human being. It's in our genes and has expressed itself in every culture and every age, including our own secularized husk of a society. By religion, I mean something quite specific, a practice, not a theory, a way of life that gives meaning, a meaning that cannot really be defended without recourse to some transcendent value and undying truth, God or God's. And then he goes on to use this example of one of his close friends who also happens to be uh, probably uh, one of the world's most famous atheists, Sam Harris. And if you don't know who that is, he was part of the four horsemen of the new atheism. And he wrote all these books against God and Christianity. And, and he says, even my friend Sam Harris, the most outspoken atheist in the United States, even he is religious. It's funny, he says, you know, he practices elements of Buddhism. And he does this because he says, well, it's at least a religion without God. Even he can't help but practice some sort of religion because religion is simply a system of attitudes and beliefs and practices. And so you probably heard the term, you probably heard the stats is uh, a lot of people these days, and especially the young, they consider themselves spiritual but not religious. And, and I get what they're kind of getting at, that they're not into like formal or traditional religion. But I, what I want to say to them, and maybe this is you, is you are religious, you can't help it. Everybody is religious. To say that you are not religious, I think, is to misunderstand what religion really is. We just, we can't help but be religious. So let's do a little history and philosophy. We rewind back to um, right after the Enlightenment. And you know that in the Enlightenment, there was all this progress that was made in science and in philosophy as the explosion of ideas and breakthroughs and and a lot of them are, are tremendously beneficial. You and I are, are, are the benefactors of those things. Um, but during that process, although all these great things emerged, there was a group of intellectuals who saw this as an opportunity for them to break free of not only religion, but belief in God. And they thought that as we continue to progress, God would become more and more irrelevant. And one of the biggest proponents of this was Nietzsche. And so Nietzsche, he is, one of his most famous lines is, God is dead. And what he meant by this is not that there was a God and that somehow he died. What he meant by this is that the idea of God is finally going to die. He was an atheist. He thought this was a really good thing. And he went on to say that it was mankind who killed this idea of God through the scientific revolution. 
And so as he was thinking about the implications of a world, or at least a society, that no longer believed in God or just didn't care about God's existence, he began to be a little bit concerned. He thought, well, what's going to fill this void? There's going to be a vacuum. What's going to enter into it? Because if we no longer believe in God or gods, what do we believe in? His solution was we need to strive to become this ubermensch, a superman, an overman, this this person who can create new values and a new way forward. But his fear was that that wasn't what was going to happen. His fear was that Christianity, when it was removed, at least from the centerpiece of, of a society, that the thing that would take its place is an ism. Now, there's lots of different kinds of isms, but the idea behind isms is it's a distinctive doctrine or theory or system or practice. And so an example would be something like a political ideology. Fast forward just a, a little while, and his fears came true. Because as Christianity retreated from the public square, was pushed out of it, there was a replacement. It was called communism and fascism. And as we know, that was the bloodiest century in all of human history. G.K. Chesterton, a brilliant thinker in the earliest 20th century, as he's watching all of this take place, here's what he said. When a man stops believing in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He believes in everything. Because man is fundamentally religious, if we reject God, we will replace him with something else, oftentimes an ism. And when the ism becomes the center place of your life, it becomes a pseudo-religion with all the, the, the same um, sacred, or same, it has sacred texts and high priests and values and virtues and sins and salvation, and even communities that you can belong to. So in that same article, Andrew Sullivan, he identifies some of America's newest and most prominent religions. Because remember, just because you get one, rid of one religion, it's just going to be replaced with another religion. So here's what he says they are. I'm actually going to go in reverse order from him. He said the, uh, the newest and um, the, uh, probably the, the one that's taking over the quickest is called wokeism. He says, we're in the middle of the great awakening. And he, he points out, and he's not the only one that has done this. Lots of people have written about it. And by the way, this isn't a left versus right thing. You know, you, this, is a, this is an alternative narrative that kind of doesn't fit in those parameters oftentimes. And it's an alternative narrative to the gospel, one that's in uh, direct opposition to it. Because it says that the original sin is oppression, abuse of power, ignorance, and bigotry. But the biblical narrative says, no, those are just symptoms. Original sin is the sin against our creator that we have rebelled against God. Our salvation for the wokest comes through activism and protest and resistance. No. Scripture says that the only way to salvation is through, the, through Jesus Christ. Only he can transform our human hearts says that humanity can be divided into two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. And I would say you're close. Jesus did say that humanity can be divided into two groups, but those aren't the groups. He said it is the saved and the unsaved. And he says, and the, the goal is for the wokest, a utopian society of equity, diversity, and justice. No, the goal is to spend eternity with God. The goal is to have a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. Now, uh, last night I did these in reverse order, and people like that one a lot more than they like these next ones, because these next ones might fit in your kitchen a little bit more. So let me give you a couple more they listed. Materialism and capitalism. Now, these aren't new, 
but these are probably the most prominent religions that we have here in America. And you can see it. You can see it by some of the slogans that we have, like sales solves everything. Greed is good. We even have our holy sites. It's called Wall Street. We have our high priest, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, our sacred texts like the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and we even have our own version of salvation. It's called financial freedom. What about nationalism and patriotism? We have put our love over country over our love over God. Somehow, and I don't know if we could explicitly say this, but I see it intuitively in a lot of people, is we've begun to believe that America is God's promised land and we are his chosen people. Uh, sorry, but if you read the Bible, that was Israel. That was his promised land and those are his chosen people. And now the people that God chooses are the people that willingly submit their lives to him. And, and his chosen land is the people who come together and say, we want you to be our authority. We want you to guide us. Yeah, God has been incredibly good to us, most definitely. But we're not his chosen people or his promised land. Oof, it was getting quiet in here. <laughs> Break, thank you. Um, some of you guys are like, I think that's heresy. I'm like, no, I think you are, all right? So <laughs> let's fight about it. Um, okay, sorry. That's not to say that we don't have pride and we don't love our, of course, we do all of those things. But when we're looking at do we love our country more than God, that, that shouldn't be an issue. All right, here's this one. Uh, nihilism and hedonism, the idea that ultimately life is meaningless and so the result of that is oftentimes people just pursue pleasure. Is, you know what, there's no meaning to this life. There's nothing after, there's, there's nothing to ha have hope and, and find fulfillment in. And so let me just see if I can dull the pain and increase my pleasure. Viktor Frankl said this, more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are just a few examples that he gave. And I think there's a never ending um, isms that we could make our, our, our religion. It could be political ideologies, conservatism, liberalism, progressivism, communism, socialism. It could be based on a cause or a belief, environmentalism, feminism, scientism, naturalism, or, and this is my favorite, and I think it's the most popular, syncretism. Syncretism is, I'm going to take a little bit of all of these different things and kind of put them into something that I like and I agree with. We could call it Codyism. That's like the Americanism right there. It's the meism. I think the point that it, it, I'm trying to make here, and I think Paul is, is trying to make, is that you and I are religious, and we just, we can't help it. That's just how we were created. We can't cease to be religious. And when we reject one form of religion, we will just trade it for another form of religion. And although there are good aspects and, and true things in each of these isms, and I, I do believe that, what happens is when you take those things and you take these good things and you make them ultimate things, it becomes toxic. It becomes destructive, not only in your life, but in the society around you. Continues on verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. So they were so afraid that they may have missed a God because they believed in so many gods that they said, you know what, just like hedge our bets here. Make sure we don't miss any blessings or we don't offend any gods out there. Let's just make one for an unknown God so we've got it all covered. 
What he's trying to say here is two things. One is that everybody worships. Just like everybody is religious, everybody worships. Because worship is about ascribing someone or something with ultimate value. You will make something the top spot in your life. You will make something number one. You, you simply can't avoid it. But most people just don't know what they worship. We look at them and we think, oh my goodness, what a bunch of silly people. How naive. They have an altar to an unknown. They don't even know what they worship. How ridiculous. And I think Paul would say to us, <laughs> hold on. Not only do you not know what you worship, you don't realize that you worship. That's even more naive than what they're doing. David Foster Wallace, who was not a believer and unfortunately came, his life came to a tragic end, he had this to say. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Even he, a non-believer, who met a very tragic end, he said, I've realized something about the human heart. <laughs> we can't cease to worship. The only choice that we have is what we're going to worship. He continues on, he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you find, or where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Here's the point he's making, and the point that scripture makes over and over again, is that idols will always break your heart. Whenever you put something as the top place in your life, and that's where you find all of your meaning and your hope and your joy, it will break your heart. Because it was never made, even these good things, they were never made to bear the weight of all your deepest hopes and longings. They were never there to support your entire life. They were just there to be a great part of your life. St. Augustine uh, described why this is. He says that ultimately when we talk about sin, we think about all these actions, these breaking of the rules and all, and that's true. But at the end of the day, sin is really about a disordered love. Should you love your career? Yes. You should be passionate about your career. And in fact, I think God gave you opportunities and resources and gifts, and, and you should really use those things because that's why he puts you in the place that you're at. You should love your job. Should you love your family? Well, yes, of course. You should love your, your spouse and your kids, and you should um, continue to try to steward those relationships well, but should you love your career more than your family? No. Why? Well, because that's a disordered love. We all know that if those loves are out of place, that you'll either destroy one or you'll end up destroying both. See, there's an order to loves in our life. And when we get that order um, disoriented or disordered, you and the people around you will always suffer. This is why God, throughout the scriptures, he constantly talks about idolatry. Not because he's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, 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 no. God doesn't need your worship. You need to worship him. Because if you don't, you're going to have something out of whack. If you have that disordered love, something is going to break. So let me give you three scenarios of what happens when we make something our ultimate that isn't God. I think the first scenario is this, is um, you will realize your dreams and they won't be enough. So this is a, a select group of people in the world. Um, may not apply to you, but there are a group of people who just get to the top of whatever mountain they're trying to climb. They're just, they're famous, they've accomplished so many things, they have tons of money, 
and that they get there and they realize it just didn't do it for them. And I know this to be true because we have entire companies that make millions of dollars dedicated to showing you that it's not enough. It's called TMZ. And what TMZ does, and other outlets like it, it shows you, here are all these super wealthy, beautiful celebrities, and their life is a complete disaster. Let's watch. This train wreck is going to be awesome. How many, how many celebrities and super wealthy do we have to watch completely wreck their life and realize, I don't think that's the answer. All of us continue to go, but I would do it different if I was there. Oh man, my marriage would still be awesome. My kids would turn out great still. Okay, you're the one. You're the one that's going to figure it out. No, what happens is, is you get to the top and you realize there was nothing there. And now you're worse off than you were before. Because before, you at least thought, if I just could get to the top of that mountain, then I would finally be happy. And I wouldn't have to deal with all of this anymore. And then you get to the top and you realize there's nothing there. So now you no longer have the illusion that the reason why you're so unhappy is because you aren't at the top of the mountain. And you're worse off than you were before. Second scenario is, you reach the top of that mountain, you realize your dreams, and you lose them. Maybe it's the relationship, maybe it's the career, maybe it's the money, but you finally have gotten it, and then it's gone. See, when an athlete has a career-ending injury, doctors have begun to realize that they not only need to address their physical, but their mental needs. Because the physical is just a part of it. But the mental, the emotional, that, that's actually stronger. Because they've played this sport for so long, this is where they found all of their identity and all their value. And when that ends, they don't know who they are anymore. And they fall into a deep depression, oftentimes substance abuse, because they've just lost everything when they were no longer able to play that game anymore. This is what happens when we put our identity in something and we lose it. Is that thing is consistently in danger of crushing our life if it's removed. Last scenario is this, and this is probably where most of us fit in. You'll chase your dreams your entire life and believe that they are the answer. So most of us, although we're going to have wins along the way and we'll accomplish certain dreams, we're always going to have like, okay, there's just, it's just out of my reach. It's so far up there, I'm just not going to be able to do it. It's just, I can't get to the top of that mountain. And so we live our entire lives thinking, if I could get there, then I would be happy. And we live under the illusion that the reason why I'm dissatisfied in life is because I'm not up there. I haven't accomplished that. I haven't realized my hopes and dreams. And we never really understand that if we did get to the top, we would be even more unhappy. We spend our entire lives pursuing and chasing and hoping and wishing and never getting there and never realizing that if we'd gotten there, it wouldn't have fixed it. Since we are fundamentally religious and we can't help but worship, we are made to worship, our heart will continue to produce. It's like an idol-making factory. It will build your life around something or someone. It cannot help it. It will find something to worship. It will find a system to develop, a religious system to develop around it. And so the question is, and this is what Paul is forcing the Athenians to see, is one, you worship something that is not God, and two, you have to realize what it is that you worship. So you gotta, you got to learn to identify your idols. Here's a real good test. Tim Keller talks about this in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, I think, and he says... Um, if you want to know what your, your idols are, or at least the things that are fighting to be the top spot in your life, look at your, your, your dreams and your nightmares. Look at your dreams. So what is the thing that you think, if I just had that, if I could just keep this, if I could just realize this, then I would be okay. Or what are your nightmares? 
the thing that if you lost, you would almost lose the will to live. What are those things? Because those are probably the things that either are in the top spot or are fighting for the top spot in your life. See, for me, and I've, I've shared this before, is I know that the thing that I can most easily make an idol in my life is my family. God has blessed me with an incredible wife and kids. My dad's okay. You know, it just <laughs> a good, a good, it kind of started going downhill off that, but good, good family. And I know that that could be an idol in my life if I'm not careful. Because it's such a good gift. And that's the things that are the most dangerous to becoming idols is the good things turning in them into God things. And so I have to constantly fight that. I have to constantly wrestle with that. I talked about this last week, or excuse me, this, this last year of having to, to constantly fight these idols in our lives. You know what? I'm going to hold on to that because I'm going to run out of time. I'm going to hustle through this. All right, let's get to the end. Paul goes through this whole process of pointing out the fact that um, they are religious and that they worship and the thing that they worship is idols and it's going to break their hearts. And he does this not just to be a, a social critic, not just so that he can point out you guys are just, you guys are messing up and this is, a, you know, it's going to end badly. No, no, no. He's building his case because he wants to do one thing. He wants them to realize that they have a problem and Paul can bring the solution. The solution is, and of course it's going to be Jesus. And so he's making his case that there is only one solution to this problem. It's not going to be another political ideology, a band-aid, another ism. He says it's all about this one thing. Here's what he says in verse 26. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus' res resurrection. What he's saying here is he's saying to them, and I think the scripture says to us, is you're not an accident. You know, contemporary belief might be that you are this accident. Uh, Big Bang, cosmology, you come into existence through all these random processes and evolution that resulted in you, and here you are, we're all a bunch of accidents. No, you're not an accident. He also says, you're not just a plaything of the gods, that there is a God, a creator God who made you specifically just the way that you are in his image. And he put you in this place and this time with those desires, those desires for to be religious, those desires to worship, those desires to be spiritual. And yet those desires are never met in anything in this world. It's because it's pointing to something outside of this world. He made you like that and he made you like that and put you here so that you would reach out for him so that you may know this God. One of, the, um, one of the, the biggest proofs that he gave of this is uh, not only sending his son Jesus to die for us, but the resurrection. That's why Paul keeps pointing to it. He goes, you don't, you, I'm not just making this up. You want proof? Here's proof. His son came, died, and then rose again. So what I'm saying is not just another theory. It's not just another idea in the, the marketplace of ideas. This is tied to an historical event. And this God, this God not only wants you to know him, but he wants you to find your value and your identity and your worth and your meaning in him because it is a relationship with him that is the only thing that's going to be able to sustain all of those hopes and longings and dreams. 
It's the only thing that has the power. It's the only thing that's going to last. It's the only thing that goes beyond the grave is it's going to be a relationship with him. And you know, you'll never lose it because you never want it. You're never going to prove that you're good enough. It's impossible. It's only going to be a gift. And that is the only thing that's going to bring the satisfaction that you're looking for. And so here's Paul's process. He identifies the idols. We need to identify our idols. And then he invites them to leave those idols behind and follow Jesus. Here's how the story ends. Three reactions. I'll go through these really quick. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Some of them just went, you're crazy. <laughs> no one raises from the dead, dude. And you're like, really? I, th I thought it happened every Tuesday. Okay, all right. No one raised from the dead. Yeah, we know. That's why it's a big deal. But they didn't want anything to do with it. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, in the context, you can't really hear their cynicism here. But what they're saying is kind of like when you see a person you haven't seen since high school. And you run into him, like, oh, we should grab lunch soon. And you're like, that's never happening. <laughs> you know, like, there's a reason I haven't seen you. <laughs> I don't want to. Uh, and then here's the last group. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Some of the people said, you know what, you're right. Even some of the leaders, uh, uh, the philosophers, they said, you're right. These are just things made of gold and silver and stone. They have no power to save. They can't do anything. If this person really did raise from the dead, then that's the power that I'm looking for. And so they begin to, to follow. See, the offer is for every one of us. It's not just for them, of course. The offer is for everybody who um, hears this story, who hears about the name of Jesus is, what do you want to do? For some of us, it's time for us to, to get our loves in order. As things have been out of whack and it's time to put those loves in order and, and God's got to be at the top. And so we need to demote some things and we need to promote some other things. And for some of us, we're kind of like addicts. And so we not only need to demote some things, but it, we're so addicted to it that we have to eliminate some things. I know some people that they are so addicted to their job. They're like a, 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 an alcoholic. It's like, dude, I'm sorry, but you can't just demote that thing in your life. It is such a big deal to you that you may have to eliminate it from your life. And you're saying, wait, you think I should go as far as like quitting my job? Yeah. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, you should pluck it out. Yeah, no, that's bad, right? That's hard, okay? That's really hard. Yeah, do hard things. If, if this is an idol, this is what's disrupting your life, get rid of it then if you can't demote it. Or, or if it's money. So Amy and I um, shared this last year, not to like try to be impressive, just to show you I'm right there with you and I'm struggling and this is how I'm battling through a lot of this stuff, is we said, you know, um, we want to make sure that money doesn't have control over us any longer. And so we're going to, and this is before the pandemic, we're going to give away 20% of our income this year. We don't make a lot of money. We're going to give away, God's going to provide, it's going to be awesome. And then the pandemic happened and we went, ah, you know, but we still did it, okay? Because you got to be ruthless with this stuff. You can't just say, I'm doing it in my heart. No, 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 no. I'm doing it in my heart, dude. No, you're not. You're deceiving yourself is what you're doing. You do it with your hands. So, so what are you going to do? Here's the other thing. Uh, so I said mine is uh, my family. That's what I can often idolize. And so here's an exercise I do uh, on a weekly basis, if not daily. I mentally open my hands, and sometimes I physically do this, and I go, okay, God, here are the things that are most important to me. Here's my wife. Here's my kids. Here's my job. Here's the here, And I just, I just mentally put those things in my hands, and I go, okay, God, Take them. They're yours. Do with them what you want to do. 
because they are a gift from you and I want to give them back. Oh, it's scary. Oh, it's terrifying. You, the mental just battle that you have. It's like, Cody, he could take them if he wanted to. You know that, right? And it's like, yeah, I know, but like I'm saying take them. Like, there's something about that. You know, it's hard. And it's like, well, do you want to fight that idolatry or do you want to just pretend like you got it all together? For others, it's time for us for the first time to come to that realization, man, you know what? There's been some idols in my life. There's, I've been worshiping some lesser things and I'm ready for the real thing. I want this Jesus that you're talking about. Today is the day you can start. Say, all right, Lord, your top spot. Here we go. Let's do this. And so I, uh, I want to invite the band up really quick because I know we're running out of time, but we don't have another service after this, and I don't care what you have going on this afternoon. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, that was rude. That was rude. That was rude. I believe it, but that was rude. Um, <laughs> one of the things that is, uh, I, I find in myself a lot, and we do this uh, at staff, and so we do daily devotionals at our, our staff every morning, and we just try to start the day off right, getting focused and everything, and, and sometimes I'll tell them, hey, um, for today's Devo, I want you guys to go find a place on campus and just spend some time with God, because I get it, you're busy, I'm busy, you may have had to get the kids ready and drop them off at school when we did schools, and like do, you know, all that stuff, you're, and you're just rushing to get here on time. And you've probably missed, like, the most important thing, which is spending time with God. And so I'll just give them the freedom. Just go and spend some time with God, and then we'll go, and we'll, we'll meet in the office in a little bit. And I think that's kind of what we need to do, because sometimes at church, you hear something, and you're kind of wrestling with it, and you're, okay, you know, I think God's trying to tell me something. I do think there's something there, and maybe there is an idol. And then what happens is we pray, we dismiss, you walk out, life comes at you. you got to go get the kids. you got to go, and then you just, you miss it. You miss the moment where God was trying to tell you something. And so I asked them to do uh, a last song, and I'm not going to ask you to stand up, to clap, to do, just to sit there, just to listen, just to see, okay, God, is there something maybe that's fighting for the top spot in my life? Because if there is, I got to eliminate it. Help me to put my loves in order. And maybe that's for the first time, or maybe it's just another time, but I just want to spend the next couple minutes being able to do that. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.